Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hi, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases, from murders to missing persons. We dive into solved and unsolved cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Washington Strangler or the Canal Murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Lindbergh kidnapping or the Tylenol murders. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking, like the Fort Hood murder of Vanessa Guillen. Sometimes you'll hear from people directly connected to the cases, like our recent episode that included an exclusive interview with the former brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are plenty of episodes of Criminology for you to binge on, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology right now, wherever you listen to your podcasts. and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing excellent today. How are you? Good. You know, I'm on full hurricane tracking mode. As soon as anything happens in the Atlantic, I am all over it and I'm very annoying about it. So I've been providing you with updates that you didn't really want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was going to say I actually learned two things today that I didn't know before. The first was that today, the day we're recording, July 31st, is National Avocado Day, which is a thing. Big day for you. It is. It was a huge day for me. So I I celebrated the day. And then the second thing I just learned today was that we have a hurricane that is just right around the corner. And I only know that because of you. So thank you very much. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm so concerned. I'm always like, don't tell people, don't scare other people, Melissa. My husband's always like, please don't tell me you're telling other people this. I'm like, well, I did already. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. I know that we had been tracking like a few storms that were out there and I just kind of stopped paying attention to them for a few days. And then next thing you know, they're upon us. I should probably not make a habit of, you know, not paying attention to the weather for that long of a period of time. At least from now until season. October. Yeah. Gotta really be <laughs> <Exactly>. in there. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so I think we'll be okay though. We'll be it doesn't fine. seem like it's gonna be coming directly over our area. So we'll be okay. Probably we'll just be, be a, a very rainy weekend. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
So the next story that we have for the podcast is the story about the crybaby killer. And if that sounds mean, it's not our fault. We did not make up that nickname. He was actually dubbed the name because of how he later acted in court. The crimes of the crybaby killer took place near Youngstown, Ohio. And before we get into the details of the story, we're going to tell you a little about Youngstown in this week's segment of We Googled This City. I like the way I said that so excitable, but we didn't have it last week. So I am very excited. Oh, wow. Okay. I liked it. Thank you. Really? <laughs> Get ready for it to like the excitement to fall. Here we go. So Youngstown is located in Northeast Ohio, and as of the 2010 census, has a population of around 66,000 residents. Youngstown, now I'm saying Youngstown, now I'm afraid it's Youngston, because you know we always screw that sort of thing up. So <laughs> in your head, tell yourself it's Youngstown or Youngston. We know it could be one of the either of them. So we're good. Now you know that we know. Just pretend like right. you know. So it's the ninth largest city in Ohio and sits just a few miles away from Pennsylvania, which tells me everything I need to know about my geography abilities, which is literally nothing. I had no idea they were so close. Youngstown was originally known as a huge steel town, but as of the 1970s, the steel industry sort of fell in that area, and now there really isn't a main industry in the town. I didn't find a bunch of fun facts about Youngstown, just some historic ones that always don't make for very good podcast intros. So we'll talk just a minute about some interesting Ohioan facts. Ohioan is that? That's how you'd say it, right? Yeah. Ohioan. I think so. Yeah. So uh, there's a candy maker by the name of Clarence Crane who came upon a pill making machine one day. I don't know how one comes up cross a pill making machine. <laughs> Maybe his class visited the pill making machinery building for school that day, like a bring your candy making kid to work day. I don't really know how that works. <laughs> so whatever the reason, he gets to this pill machine, sees it and decides, hey, if you can make pills like that, it'd be a great way to make candy. And on one particular day, the machine actually glitched. And instead of keeping the inside of the little circle, like a pill, it kept the round O on the outside. And so he capitalized on this fact and called these new mints he was making lifesavers. Oh, yeah. So I assume now that it has something to do with like lifeguards and the little circle things that you they have. I don't know that to be true. The oh, internet's my well, teacher. Well, let me tell you. No, let me tell I'm you saying. what I always thought it was. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> so for some reason, someone must have told me this as a child, but I always thought lifesavers were called that because since they have a hole in them, if you got one like lodged in your throat, then you could still breathe through it. But now that I'm I... thinking about it, like that's probably not the actual reason, but that's what I've always thought was actually was the like reason an emergency <laughs> emergency <laughs> choking prevention. I'm going to tell you, I don't know the real reason. So let's go with it. We can tell all these people that that's the way it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't Google behind us. Never Google behind us. So he ended up selling this invention for almost $3,000, the actual lifesaver in 1913. And we still almost break our teeth on those candies to this very day. So lots of famous folks come from around Youngstown, including Modern Family and Married with Children star Ed O'Neill, as well as Amoroso Man... I can never say her name right. Amorosa Manigault Stallworth, and she's married now again, so I don't remember what the last name is. And lastly, you can celebrate good times indeed with Robert and Ronald Bell from the funk and soul group Cool in the Gang, who also call Youngstown their home. Final fact. Lake Erie, which is located in Ohio, was brought up in an early edition of the story of the Lorax. In this story, Dr. Seuss talks about the hummingfish. And by the way, I was so glad I found this word in quotes because I thought, is a hummingfish a real thing? I literally had a moment. <laughs> and there was a line in the story that said, quote, they'll walk on their fins and get woefully weary in search of some water that isn't so smeary. I hear things are just as bad in Lake Erie, end quote which is kind of rude, really. Right. And apparently the employees at the Ohio Sea Grant were not super thrilled about how Dr. Seuss was memorializing their infamous lake as being this disgusting place for the imaginary hummingfish. So they actually wrote Dr. Seuss and asked him to change it. And he obliged and in further additions that was no longer in there. But Florida legend has it that the original line was removed after the Florida Sea Grant employees fought to have it removed. And that one read... They'll walk on their feet and drink only soda in search of some land that isn't in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I've got. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start this episode a little differently, and we're going to do so by talking about the crime first. 
I know we usually talk about the backgrounds of the people in the story, but this story is really kind of a doozy. So we'll talk about what we know, and then we'll backtrack and fill in some of the blanks there. So the day was Thursday, February 7th, 1991. Blockbusters lined the streets like red box stations do in 2020. It was a week before Silence of the Lambs came out, and people were really living like there's no tomorrow, as they should every single day. I think pretty much these days, everyone is living like there's no tomorrow because sometimes it feels like there might not be. YOLO, YOLO. Yeah, for sure. 22-year-old Tammy Ingstrom had just dropped her adorable one-year-old son, Casey, off at her friend Sharon King's house at around 5.30 p.m. Tammy wasn't going to go out with other friends, though. Instead, she was on her way to work that night. Tammy worked at the Clover Bar in Hubbard, Ohio, which is in Northeast Ohio, near Youngstown, Akron, and Cleveland. It's a small rural town, and there's not really much to do on a Thursday night except go to work, drink alcohol, or find something illegal to get into. On this particular night, Tammy headed to work, where, interestingly enough, her mom, Mary Jane Heiss, also worked with her. Tammy arrived at around 6.30 p.m., and work was okay for a little while, but at around 9.30 p.m., Tammy started saying that she wasn't feeling well, and her mom agreed to take over her shift for the rest of the night so that she could leave. Tammy, however, didn't just get right into her car and head straight home. Instead, she went to another bar called the Nickelodeon. And yeah, we're talking about like the cartoon channel Nickelodeon, except we're not really. That's just the name of the bar. This is actually a defunct bar now, but I did find a Facebook page that was in remembrance of it. And as it turns out, it had absolutely nothing to do with Nickelodeon programming, but that would actually be kind of a genius bar concept if you think about it. I feel like all the 90s people, all the people who grew up at least living in the 90s, would love a Nickelodeon-themed place to hang out. It seems I like a really good it. idea. Yeah, yeah, it's like Legends the one the bar temple. I might get you to go to. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so it was actually just a dive bar in a small, small building in Massery, Ohio, which is just about 10 minutes north from Hubbard and closer to the Pennsylvania border. So this will come into play a little bit later in the story. Tammy apparently went to go and visit her uncle, Daniel Hivner. We're going to call him Dan throughout the story, though. Reports state that he was a regular patron of the Nickelodeon, but research also called him the owner and also just a worker. Either way, he was really just there a lot. Tammy got there around 10 p.m., which it was really a 10-minute drive, so not really sure what she was doing for that other 20 minutes. But when she arrived, she was wearing full-on black, a black leather coat, black pants, a sweater, black shoes, black stockings, and a recently purchased secondhand by her friend who was actually babysitting that night, a $1,200 cluster diamond ring. To change up the outfit, she did have a small gray purse, which patrons of the bar said had a significant amount of money in it. Tammy talked to her uncle, and the two of them enjoyed many drinks together. Around 11 p.m., one of Dan's friends, named Kenneth Byros, joined the two of them. Ken knew Dan from a previous drinking event that was sponsored by the Nickelodeon and some other local bars. Ken and Tammy, though, had never met before that night. The three of them continued drinking together, and by midnight, Tammy was pretty intoxicated. She actually passed out in her chair, either from having too much to drink or because she wasn't really feeling well. She then hit the floor and Ken and Dan helped her back into her chair. She continued to stay at the bar even after her fall and stayed until the bar closed, which was around 1 a.m. Ken and Dan helped Tammy get outside and she insisted at that point that she was totally fine and she could drive herself home. But her uncle Dan knew that, you know, obviously it was not safe for her to do so. So he took her keys and refused to let her drive, letting her know that she had been drinking too much at that point to to drive safely home. Ken, being the nice guy that he seemed to be, offered to take Tammy to get some coffee to try to help sober her up. Ken must have been someone that Dan really trusted because he gave him the keys and agreed to let him drive his niece to get some coffee and to bring her back to the bar later. Tammy got her purse and got ready to leave. At this point, it was around 1.15 a.m. Dan waited as Ken went with Tammy, and they peeled out of the small parking lot of the bar. And, of course, Dan is thinking that he is going to see a more sober Tammy maybe in an hour or so when Ken brought her back. He had no idea that this was the last time he would ever see Tammy again. Now, this is where the story kind of gets a little complicated because the reports are different from each person as to what happened from this point on. So we're going to backtrack a little bit and talk about Tammy's husband, Andy. 
So the two of them were actually newlyweds. They had just tied the knot on December 9th, 1988. There's no pictures of their wedding, at least not that you can find on the internet. But of course, it was in Ohio and it was in the winter. So it was probably gorgeous with snowy walkways and the smell of frost or, you know, leftover pumpkins from the fall. I'm sure it was just beautiful. I'm not from Ohio, but we actually had some help researching this case. And the researcher is from Ohio. So she said, I guess that's one of those places where you can experience all the seasons pretty much on the same day. And that's kind of like a joke there, which I get it because here in Florida, the joke is just that like there's no no seasons. It's just summer (laughs) and extra summer. So I totally get it. Ohio actually sounds lovely based on this information right here. So not much is actually known in terms of their background. And I do just want to say that her husband, Andy, seems like a pretty good guy. There was really nothing blatantly wrong with him. At around 1130 p.m., Andy stopped by the Clover Bar to drop off a present for Tammy, which, of course, is a really sweet gesture. But when he got there, he quickly learned that she wasn't working and that she had gone home sick. He called the babysitter, Sharon, and arranged for her to keep watching Tammy's son, Casey, and Sharon agreed. Around 1 o'clock in the morning, Andy talked to Tammy's sister, Debbie, who suggested that Tammy may have gone to the Nickelodeon bar. So if her sister kind of suggested that, and we already know the uncle was there, I kind of get the impression that maybe the family all kind of, that was just a place, you know, they all kind of went to go hang out. Approximately 10 minutes later, Andy placed a call to the Nickelodeon bar, and he was informed that Tammy and her uncle had already left. So he decided that he was just going to go off to bed. Some people might say that's a little strange whenever he doesn't know where his new wife is. But I imagine if it was like a normal thing where she would go meet up with her uncle after work or hang out, he must have just not been concerned, you know, and thought that she would be home soon. So he just went off to bed. Right. And it wasn't a time where we all had phones and you could easily text somebody and, you know, you just trusted people got to where they were going when they when they were going to get there. That's just kind of how it was then. So we want to focus on how the family reacted first, and then we'll get into more of the details of what actually happened next. Andy woke up the next morning and was immediately worried because Tammy still hadn't come home at that point. We don't know exactly what time he woke up that morning, but if he got up, you know, he was out until at least 1 a.m., he probably didn't get up super early the next day. So around noon, he and a friend stopped by the Nickelodeon to pick up Tammy's car, which had been left there overnight. At some point during that time, he learned that Ken was the last person seen with Tammy. So he drove over to Ken's house. We aren't sure exactly how he knew where Ken lived. Either way, he drove there, he knew the address, and he was able to go over there to look for Tammy. Andy then confronted Ken about Tammy's whereabouts, and Ken was very quick to say that he and Tammy had left and gone to get coffee, just like he had, you know, that was the whole plan. But then he said that at some point, he tapped her on the shoulder and she, quote, freaked out. She got out of the car and started running through people's yards on Davis Street. Where they were at this point was in nearby Sharon, Pennsylvania and near obviously Davis Street. This street is approximately three tenths of a mile away from the Nickelodeon, so not really far at all. Andy told Ken that he had already contacted the police in Sharon, Pennsylvania and that he intended on filing a missing persons report with the Brookfield Township in Ohio, their police department. Andy then threatened Ken with an eerie message. He said, quote, if she don't turn up right fast, they are going to come looking for you and it's going to be your blank. So at this point, Andy doesn't know where his wife is. Ken is saying, hey, she jumped out of the car. I don't really know where she is either. So they're still looking for her. And we're going to get right back into what happens next in the story after taking a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I don't know about you, but over the past few months, I've gotten dangerously close to finishing everything there is to watch on Netflix, which is why I'm so glad to have Acorn TV in my life. Acorn TV is a subscription streaming service that offers dramas, comedies, mysteries, and even documentaries, all commercial-free and all from across several ponds. There's everything from timeless classics to those shows that are just really kind of hard to find, and even newly discovered favorites from Britain, Ireland, Australia, and beyond. Plus, you'll never run out of new stuff to watch because Acorn TV adds new releases every Monday. I scrolled through all that Acorn TV has to offer and this series, The Nest, caught my eye and I think you guys would be interested as well. The Nest is an Acorn original and a BBC new top drama about a Scottish couple who recruit an 18-year-old surrogate to carry their baby. But of course, it's not a show worth watching without secrets from the past popping up and making things even more interesting. 
I can't wait to check that out. And with Acorn TV, I can stream from my phone and download the app or watch online and even stream to Amazon, Fire TV, Roku, Chromecast, and more. Britain gave us The Office, so you know there are going to be some amazing comedies to watch as well. I just started The Worst Week of My Life, and it's all about, you guessed it, the worst week of the main character's life. And he's had quite a few, including the week before his wedding and even the week before his first child was born. There are literally thousands of hours of amazing content to watch right at your fingertips for just $5.99 a month and all commercial free. Escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code MOMS. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV code MOMS to get your first 30 days for free. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about the disappearance of Tammy Ingstrom, followed by a late night at a bar with her uncle and his friend, Ken Byros. Ken was the last person to see Tammy after he allegedly took her to get coffee to sober up that night. All day that Friday, Ken was telling different people the same story about Tammy, that she woke up, became frightened, and jumped from his vehicle. Specifically, he told Tammy's mom, brother, uncles, friends, acquaintances, and others that she ran between houses near Carpenter's Towing or Carpenter's Garage on Davis Street in Sharon, Pennsylvania. So he's being very specific about the last place that he claims he had, you know, had seen Tammy. Right. He also added additional details that he hadn't included in his story before. Now he started to say that he initially chased after Tammy and he was unable to catch her. He told these people that he abandoned the chase because he was scared that he would be caught driving under the influence. But the people that he was talking to about his version of events aren't stupid people. And they noticed that he there were some things about him that seemed a little off, like he had fresh cuts and scratches on his hands and a fresh wound over his right eye that they knew was not there the night before. Ken's reasoning, he said, was that he was locked out of his house and had to break a window, and that's how the cuts on his hands got there, and the cut on his eye he got while he was chopping wood. Two separate injuries overnight? Right, overnight, exactly, in the middle of the night. Very, very interesting. So Tammy's brother also got involved and actually threatened to kill Ken if Tammy had been hurt in any way. And one of Tammy's uncles said that if Tammy had been hurt, he would, quote, rip Ken's heart out. So her family is very upset and they clearly think that Ken knows more than what he's telling. Right. Tammy's mom said, quote, if you put one scratch on my daughter, I will bleeping kill you. So like we said, her whole family is really just not um, liking, liking the way that this guy is coming across. 
So Ken's response to Tammy's mom was, quote, don't worry, your daughter's going to be just fine. You wait and see. However, Tammy's family was not really getting positive vibes from Ken at this point, and that should be pretty obvious based on the threats and the things that they have had to say towards him. That evening, Ken joined Tammy's friends and family to search the area in Sharon, Pennsylvania, where he claimed to have last seen Tammy. Now, for a little background on Ken, he was born on June 24, 1958, to Pete and Joanne Byros. Growing up, he really didn't have a very stable childhood. His dad was very domineering and tyrannical, and Pete treated his family really like property. He belittled and berated poor Joanne and the kids. He showed little to no affection and isolated them from their family and friends. He allegedly wouldn't even let them go to church. Pete was an extremely jealous man who accused Joanne of infidelity and really gaslit her constantly, going between threatening to take his own life and then threatening to kill her. Pete ended up dying from cirrhosis of the liver in October of 1983. His death was actually a very big turning point in Ken's life. Although he wasn't a great man, he was still Ken's dad and it hit him really hard. From this point on, Ken seemed to have developed an anger inside him, which generally he was able to really suppress, but on that night with Tammy, something came out of him. We'll get back to that, though. Family members described Ken as helpful and caring and someone with a really good heart. He was a graduate of YSU, where he took criminology and forensic classes. Although his interest was studying criminology, he himself did have a short criminal history. Back in April of 1977, he was involved in a larceny case, but the case was ultimately dismissed. In October of 1986, he was caught driving under the influence, but he pled guilty to reckless operation of a motor vehicle. Apart from his upbringing, those around him thought he was a pretty normal guy. There was certainly none of those general characteristics of a serial killer that you might expect to see, like hurting animals or having trouble in school or being an outcast. He was actually a pretty social guy and seemed to have a really bright future ahead of him. Going back to Friday the 8th, that morning, Joanne, who was Ken's mom, found a gold ring on her bathroom floor. So before we get into this, we also have to point out that Ken did live with his mom and his brother, Curry. That Friday night, Curry saw Ken in the pasture behind the house and asked him what he was doing. And Ken said that he was, quote, watching stars. This must have been kind of an odd thing for Ken to do for multiple court documents to really make sure that they added it in there. But it is listed as an important piece of information in this case. On the 9th, which was Saturday after the disappearance of Tammy, Ken's mom asked Ken if he knew anything about the gold ring that she found. And he told her that he didn't know anything about it and that it appeared to be made of cheap gold. His mom, however, disagreed and said that this was not a cheap ring and she suggested that maybe it belonged to the girl who had jumped out of his car early on Friday morning. Then he took the ring and he claimed that he was going to take it to the Nickelodeon, which is kind of an odd choice considering you know that this woman is missing and the police are looking for her. And if you have this ring, it would make the most sense to hand it over to the police and not take it back to the bar where she was last seen because, you know, right now the police are looking for her and doing this investigation. So it seems odd that he wouldn't turn that over to the police. He never did take the ring to the Nickelodeon. He did, however, hide it in the ceiling of his house, which, meh, I don't know why you would really do that unless Unless you you had something that you were trying to hide. Exactly. So all Saturday morning, Tammy's friends and family continued to spend hours looking for Tammy in Sharon, Pennsylvania. They also searched the wooded area along the railroad tracks near Ken's house on King Graves Road. The search party wasn't able to recover any clues concerning Tammy's disappearance. Saturday afternoon, the police contacted Ken regarding Tammy's whereabouts. They let him know that he wasn't under arrest and they just needed information. So there's two important members of the police in this story. The first one is Rocky Fonts, who's a Brookfield Township police detective working on his very first murder case, and John Cleric of the Sharon Police Department, who also helped with the questioning of Kim. I think Rocky Fonts is actually a perfect, like, it's like really good name for a police detective. Right. So I, I love that guy's name. It definitely sounds like something you would see in a movie or something. Yeah. In an interview with the Columbus Dispatch, Rocky Fonts said that he knew Ken as a perfectly normal guy from the area, but he noticed that Ken got nervous when he was questioned about Tammy. He said, quote, all of a sudden I'm watching his swallowing. I'm watching his respiration. Kenny's getting scared. I'm starting to get bad feelings, end quote. 
At some point during this interview that Rocky was having with Ken, the other detective, John, joined in and began to help with the questioning. John suggested that maybe Ken had made a sexual advance towards Tammy that night, which made her uncomfortable enough to jump from his car. For his part, though, Ken denied this version of events. Then John changed what he was saying ever so slightly and suggested that maybe Ken made sexual advances that caused Tammy to jump from the car and then maybe she hit her head, but Ken also denied this. John, though, was a very smart investigator and he was very persistent. Eventually, he suggested yet again that Ken may have made sexual advances and that Tammy had fallen out of the car and struck her head. This was really the golden ticket for the police. Ken then responded, yes, and that's when he admitted that he had done something, quote, very bad. John, though, was no rookie, and as he continued this interrogation, he knew the right questions to ask and really just how to ask them to get to Ken. He offered to speak to Ken alone, and Ken agreed, saying he wanted to speak to John out of the presence of the other officers. Ken then continued, quote, it's like you said, we were in the car together. We were out along the railroad tracks. I touched her on the hand. Then I went further. I either touched or felt her leg. She pushed my hand away. The car wasn't quite stopped. She opened the door and fell and struck her head on the tracks, end quote. He told John that she was dead and the incident occurred along the railroad tracks near King Graves Road in Brookfield Township. Remember, Ken lives on King Graves Road, so this had happened really close to his house. And remember that night he was actually going out to bring her to get coffee and then go back to the bar, but not bringing her back to his house. Ken continued to speak and really tell the same story in front of Detective Rocky Fonts. Rocky remembered this moment. At this point, Ken spoke to him. He said, quote, I'm still thinking it's an accidental death. So yeah, when Rocky comes back in the room, he's like, things have definitely changed from where this had first happened. He said that then Ken added additional details. He said that Tammy hit her head on the metal part of the railroad tracks and then died. He admitted that her body was in Pennsylvania, and when asked about the precise location, that's whenever he decided he wanted an attorney. Ken met with his attorney, and the attorney told officers that he was willing to take police to the locations where Tammy's body would be found. And yes, that's locations, plural, not just one. What investigators didn't know yet was that Ken had dismembered Tammy's body. He continued to try to make it seem like an accident, knowing full well it was no such thing. Rocky told the Columbus Dispatch that at that point, quote, I said he cut her up. This was no accident. I said this was a mutilation. This goofball murdered this girl and he cut her up, end quote. Early Sunday, February 10th, 1991, Pennsylvania and Ohio authorities discovered several of Tammy's body parts in a desolate wooded area of Butler County, Pennsylvania. Other parts were found in the same type of flora in Venango County, Pennsylvania, which is approximately 30 miles away from the Butler County site where they had found the first set of remains. So a little forewarning here, Tammy's death and the details are really brutal and gruesome. So I know we don't usually get into those kind of things on the show, but we're going to do it as best as we can. So Tammy's head and right breast had actually been severed from her torso. Her right leg was amputated just above the knee, and her body was completely nude except for what appeared to be remnants of black stockings that were purposely rolled down to her feet or ankles. The torso had been cut open, and her abdominal cavity was partially eviscerated. Her sexual organs were removed from the body, and they were actually never recovered by the police. When the police went to the railroad tracks near King Graves Road, they found the following evidence. There was a large area of blood-stained gravel near the tracks. Blood spatters on the side of one of the tracks were also found. There were a number of blood stains found in the general area, and a swampy area near the tracks contained some of Tammy's remains. The blood was found to be consistent with Tammy's blood, and the remains they found were also a match. Approximately a month later, police recovered Tammy's black leather coat partially buried a short distance away from the tracks. The coat had two cuts or slash marks on or near the collar in a shallow hole in close proximity to the location of the coat were Tammy's keys and a tube of her lipstick. Police were also able to recover one of her black leather shoes in the area of the railroad tracks. 
A forensic scientist with the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation found one single pubic hair inside of Tammy's shoe, which was found to be microscopically consistent with characteristics of known samples of Tammy's own pubic hair. During the search of Ken's house, investigators found really a ton of evidence. A blood-stained pocket knife was hidden in his basement, a much larger knife was recovered from his bathroom, and a blood-stained coat was found in his bedroom. The coat that was found was later identified as the one that Ken wore to the Nickelodeon on the night that he met Tammy. It had bloodstains on the front of it and spatters on the inside of the left sleeve. The stains found on the pocket knife and the coat were both a match to Tammy. A pair of size 11 shoes were found in Ken's bedroom, and these contained a single hair in the tread of one shoe that was, again, consistent from coming from Tammy's head. His car was searched, and numerous bloodstains were found, and you guessed it, they also were a match to Tammy. In the inside of the trunk of his car, a small piece of human tissue was found. It was consistent with being tissue from the liver. An autopsy was done by Dr. William Cox, and the findings are very disturbing, so we'll just tell you that she suffered a truly horrific death. According to the autopsy, her cause of death was asphyxia due to strangulation, and her hyoid bone was broken as a result of the strangulation. On top of that, she was beaten and stabbed five times, and within minutes, she was dismembered. She was found to have suffered over 91 post-mortem injuries and an attempt at sexual mutilation. Tammy had clearly suffered way more than a fall from a vehicle. And we're going to get right back into more details of what happened in this investigation after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We've now had a Rothy's shoes for almost two years, and they are still my go-to shoes. I wear them literally day in and day out, and they are so comfortable, but also they look good with anything, including dresses, shorts, and even paint-stained sweatpants. And I know what you're thinking, Melissa, those shoes have to be disgusting after two years, but they aren't because they're Rothy's and they're fully machine washable. Anytime they need a little refresh, I can simply toss them in the washing machine and they're as good as new. I loved my Rothy's so much that I bought a second pair. This time, I chose the limited edition sneakers in Bubblegum. They are a very eye-catching shade of pink that adds a fun pop to my otherwise boring wardrobe. Now that I have two pairs of Rothy's, my biggest shoe problem is deciding which ones to wear. Rothy's come in an expansive and ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns, and in a range of styles. There is truly a perfect and comfortable shoe for everyone's personal style. Plus, I love that Rothy's feel amazing from the very first time you wear them because there is no break-in period. And that's because they're seamlessly knit with thread that's made from plastic water bottles. So they are like Cinderella's glass slippers as soon as you put them on. They are perfect. As an added bonus, they always come with free shipping and free returns. Check out all of the amazing shoes and bags available right now at rothys.com moms. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. Now back to the episode. Before the break, we were just talking about the findings of the autopsy performed on Tammy's remains and the many injuries she sustained during the attack on her life. Although Ken was able to recall minute details of the crime, in the end, he apparently couldn't recall where he had disposed of her sexual organs. Ken was convicted of the following on October 18, 1991. He was found guilty of aggravated murder and he received a sentence of death. And two specifications that actually made it a death penalty case were that 
It involved committing or fleeing immediately after committing aggravated robbery and attempting to commit or fleeing immediately after attempting to commit rape. He was also convicted of felonious sexual penetration, abuse of a corpse, and this was actually one that was dismissed prior to the trial. He was convicted of aggravated robbery and received 10 to 25 years, and he was also convicted of attempted rape, which he received 8 to 15 years for. Before the trial, Dr. James Eisenberg interviewed Ken in March of 1991 and on other occasions and found the following. He said that Ken came from an extremely dysfunctional family and that his relationship with his dad significantly affected his life and personality. While he was dismembering Tammy, he was allegedly mentally reenacting scenes from when he hunted deer with his father and he would have to slaughter the kills and his father of course the whole time would be berating him telling him that he was worthless and incompetent he was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and lifelong alcohol dependence and neurotic depression he graduated from college after having worked towards a degree for 13 years he was able to persevere despite the trying circumstances of his youth and he was employed throughout most of his adult life. No significant history of prior criminal convictions really existed for him, and between February of 1991 to his trial, he had no reported problems in the Trumbull County Jail. It was determined that he was not insane at the time of trial or at the time of the killing, and that he definitely knows the difference between right and wrong. The psychological conditions didn't rise to the level of a mental defect or a disease that deprived him of the capacity to really understand and appreciate the criminality of his conduct or to conform to the requirement of the law. In trial, Ken made the decision to testify in his own defense, which can be a very risky move for the defendant. His attorneys worked very hard to make a case for accidental death rather than for murder. While on the stand, Ken started with the same story as he had previously told. To save time, we won't go back into the full story, but we'll add what Ken added while he was on the stand. On the night of Tammy's murder, after getting Tammy in his car, he drove to a nearby ATM in Sharon, Pennsylvania to withdraw some cash. At some point, he reached over and shook Tammy since she had fallen asleep. She awoke and said she wanted to go home. Tammy let Ken know that her home was in Hubbard, Ohio, but she never gave Ken exact details. So what did he decide to do? he decides to take her to his house to let her sleep it off. Ken decided on his way home to drive along the gravel railroad bed, which would take him just a few hundred feet of his house on King Graves Road. While on the railroad bed, he again reached over to Tammy and grabbed her hand to wake her. At this point, she suddenly awoke, looked at Ken, and began yelling, quote, I don't know you. Where are we at? End quote. Ken alleges that at this point, Tammy begins to fight him hitting him and just yelling at him, saying she wanted to go home. So to calm her down, Ken forcibly struck Tammy with his forearm. Tammy then tried to flee from the car, so she gets out and starts running across the railroad tracks, but Ken wasn't just going to let her go. He said that he followed her along the railroad tracks in his car, trying to pull off in front of her just to speak with her. In his attempts to get in front of her to, quote-unquote, just talk, he inadvertently strikes her, causing her to topple over the car at a 45-degree angle with her head positioned toward the gravel railroad bed. She was face down, leaning over the car like she may have fallen before she had been hit. At that point that he got out of the car, rolled Tammy over to her back, and as she was bleeding, her head was positioned against the steel rail on the railroad track. He then claimed that Tammy pushed him, started screaming and swearing and throwing rocks at him. And that's when Ken said he finally snapped. He felt like he couldn't take one more person bullying him the way his father did, so he pulled out his pocket knife to, quote, calm Tammy down. Tammy was a fighter, and she wasn't going to just let her death come easily. She grabbed the knife, and a struggle ensued. In the struggle, Ken cut his hand, but was eventually able to regain control of the situation. Tammy continued to scream and fight for her life, and Ken couldn't let anybody know what was going on, so he put his hand over her mouth to silence her until she stopped struggling. Ken continued on with his story, saying that when he removed his hand from her mouth, he realized that Tammy was not breathing. So he was allegedly so angry with himself and so upset that his response was to stab Tammy several times. So he's mad at himself, so he takes it out on her. Got it. Right. 
So we really know that his story here is not true because the coroner's report stated that the asphyxiation happened from someone putting their hand around Tammy's throat because that's where the hyoid bone is. It's not in your mouth, it's in your throat. So it wouldn't make any sense why him covering her mouth to suffocate her would have, they wouldn't have found what they found in her autopsy later. Once Ken had suffocated Tammy, he hurt her another 91 times. So this, of course, now becomes a situation where he's just torturing her for really no reason at all. He said it was an accident, but we know that it was not an accident. This was really a cold-blooded murder. After killing and stabbing Tammy, Ken said that he panicked, and then he drove home, and he tended to his wounds and washed his clothes, and apparently he returned to the body about 15 to 20 minutes later, and he, again, became very angry, and he believed that Tammy had, quote, just destroyed his life which is really an interesting thing for him to even think considering the circumstances of this whole thing. So he took his pocket knife and began to cut Tammy's clothes away, saying that they were in the way and he dismembered her body. He then dragged her body into the woods and he felt her ring cutting into his left hand while he was doing this. So he took the ring off and put it in his pocket. And that's how it ended up on the bathroom floor where his mom found it the next day. At first, Ken just tried to bury Tammy's body in a shallow hole in the ground, but he realized quickly that it wouldn't fit. So it was at this point that he amputated her head and leg with the pocket knife and placed those parts into a separate hole. Ken then took off her clothing and placed it in different holes in the ground, and once he buried the body, he went back home. Later on Friday, he found Tammy's purse in his car and decided to burn it in the fireplace, and then he washed his car. On Friday night, though, Ken decided to move Tammy's body. Tammy's relatives had been threatening him by this point, and he got really freaked out. While his brother was watching TV, Ken went and retrieved Tammy's body parts and loaded them up into his car and headed to Pennsylvania to dispose of her body. If you'll recall from earlier in the story, this would have been at the same time he told his brother that he was out stargazing. He lied to police, he lied to Tammy's family, and he even lied to his own mother. He denied, though, telling police where he actually put his hand on Tammy. He denied having any sexual intentions towards Tammy. He denied hitting Tammy with his fist or with the blunt end of a knife. He denied ever wanting to kill Tammy. He said it was all just a mistake. According to him, it really was just as simple as that. It was all a really unfortunate accident he somehow got himself involved in. So looking at the autopsy report, though, none of the time frames he could even give would be accurate. Tammy was tortured and strangled to death. It wasn't 15 minutes later. It wasn't 45 minutes later. It was really moments later. It was directly after. She was stabbed while she was still alive and conscious. After hearing all the information in the court, the jury also believed that Ken was guilty of Tammy's murder, and they sentenced him to death. But our story actually doesn't end there. While in jail, Ken really never could stay on the straight and narrow. In May of 1992, he was found to be in possession of a cardboard tube that could be used as a blowgun, along with three darts that he made out of toilet paper and bent staples. Whoa. Yeah, that is quite a weapon. (laughs) He had to spend 10 days in disciplinary control. So during that same month, though, Ken received a conduct report for having a knife that he made out of a piece of antenna, although he was found not guilty of a violation in that instance, which sounds even scarier. So in October of 1995, he received another conduct report for taking too long on the phone after being warned by the staff. After this happened, they gave his cell a shakedown where officers found 12 packs of cigarettes and a game ticket. Both of these are considered contraband and it was confiscated and he received a suspended disciplinary control sentence. That second one is the one I would also be worried about way more than being on the phone too long. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. So Ken tried unsuccessfully to appeal his conviction. The cross-appeal is quoted as saying, We have also considered whether this appellant might be capable of long-term rehabilitation and ultimate reintegration into society after lengthy incarceration, given his favorable work record, his college degree, and his lack of a significant prior criminal history. However, the acts of sheer inhumanity demonstrated by this appellant in the nature and circumstances of the offense convince us that he is incapable of any meaningful rehabilitation. So there was really no chance, you know, for sympathy or any kind of change to his sentence from them. A lot of things happen after a murder. 
people are really changed indefinitely, and some things just can never be forgotten or improved. On July 9, 2005, at the age of 45, Andy Engstrom, who was Tammy's husband, died of a heart attack. But those who knew him said that they swear he died of a broken heart, which is just so awful and sad. In a supplemental clemency report from 2009, the following facts are iterated regarding Ken. He worked on death row as a food cart attendant and lived in the special privileges unit. He participated in religious services and community service projects at the Ohio State Penitentiary. And during an interview on October 22nd, 2009, he said that this crime grew out of an auto accident and that he was innocent of attempted rape and didn't have any sexual contact with Tammy. He said that he couldn't remember many of the details due to an alcohol-induced blackout. And he then kind of gives the same story that he said above about the car accident thing. And he denied ever hitting her. While Ken's been in jail, he has allegedly become more religious, and he attends Catholic Mass and works with an Eastern Orthodox priest. The option of life without parole wasn't the original option for his sentence when he was tried, but if it was, the jury might have chosen it. Mary Jane, who is Tammy's mom, was in very poor health by this point, but she was trying to save up her strength to attend Ken's execution. Since her daughter's death, she'd experienced nearly 20 years of constant agony and nightmares about the situation, and she believed that her nightmares would finally end with Ken's execution. Pat Engstrom, who was Tammy's mother-in-law, said that Tammy's son Casey grew up without a mom and that his father Andy died when he was 16. So she feels that Ken is not accepting the responsibility that he has by saying that this was a car accident. And she also believes that there is nothing cruel or unusual about him receiving the death penalty. Debbie, who was Tammy's sister, said that after the murder, her parents both kind of felt ill. They had to have a closed casket funeral for Tammy due to the injuries, and they were unable to properly say goodbye to her. So holidays, of course, are never the same. And she said that Ken was a coward for filing all the lawsuits and not just taking responsibility for his crimes. Ken tried time after time to live out his days in jail instead of dying by the state. Just as Tammy was unable to escape the grasp of her killer, Ken was unable to escape the grasp of the state's intentions on putting him to death. His last meal consisted of a cheese pizza, onion rings and fried mushrooms, Doritos with French onion dip, cherry pie, blueberry ice cream, and a Dr. Pepper. Well, that is quite a spread. Yeah, it, it really is. There's, there's a lot going on there. Reports of his final words vary, but all in all, he said this. I'm sorry from the bottom of my heart. I want to thank all of my family and friends for my prayers and who supported and believed in me. My father now, I'm being paroled to heaven. I will now spend all of my holidays with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peace be with you all. Amen. On December 8th, 2009, at the age of 51, Ken took his final breath. After attempting nine different times to get an IV into Ken's arm at 11.47 a.m., just nine minutes after receiving a single large dose of a powerful anesthetic, Ken Byrus was pronounced dead. Mary Jane, Debbie, and Tammy's brother Tom were all present at the execution. In a press conference afterwards, Mary Jane was in a wheelchair and she was on oxygen, but she said, quote, It's my happy day that I was here to see this execution, end quote. Debbie, who is still harboring resentment towards Ken, said that she felt his death went too smooth. She said, quote, I think he should have gone through some pain for what he did. When the time of death was announced, there was a brief applause. Ken's death actually had some meaning. He was the fourth person to be executed by the state of Ohio in the year 2009 and the 33rd to die since Ohio resumed capital punishment in 1999. He was the first person to be executed using a one-drug lethal injection protocol, and many of the news articles that you search with Ken's name really detail the debates over doing it this way. But either way, the Ohio prison director at the time, who was Terry Collins, believed it was a success. There were, quote, no problems whatsoever, and, quote, the process worked as expected. To say that Mary Jane waited to see her daughter's killer put to death is really no understatement. Just 12 days after Ken's execution, on December 20th, 2009, Mary Jane died. She was finally at peace and with her daughter once again. 
Some interesting things to note about this case in the aftermath is that apparently the house where Ken used to live was thought to be haunted by Tammy. Ken's mom actually eventually moved out of that house and it was boarded up and caught fire and completely collapsed one day. So the grounds where it stood are still rumored to be haunted. But you know how I am. I don't really believe in like hauntings and stuff, but I just think it's interesting that they're that the house actually burnt down and it's not yeah. even there anymore. So that was the story this week, a really terrible one. I feel like that was probably one of the more gruesome ones that we've talked for about, sure. but Tammy's story of course is really important and it's very sad for her family that they lost her, especially in, in that way. It's just unimaginable thinking about what she went through that last night. Yeah. It, it's hard to, you know, obviously her uncle felt like this is somebody who she could be trusted with. It wasn't just a stranger. It was somebody he had some relationship with. He knew of some way, you know, and felt like, okay, that's a safe thing to do. And obviously it wasn't her uncle's fault, of course, but it's just sad that, you know, that's kind of how things happened. Not because of that, obviously, but, you know, that that ever happened, that you trust somebody and then to take advantage of that trust in such a terrible way where it ruins so many people's lives is just, it's so hard to even understand. You can't understand it, really. No, you really can't. So, Melissa, we're going to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go. It is the first week of the month. So that means we have our hero segment this week. And I'm really excited about our hero this week because I love the hero. So I'm going to read the email that we got from Nicole Bianco. And she sent this to us just a couple weeks ago. And it was such a great one. So we're going to share it on the episode this week. So her email said, Hi, Mandy and Melissa. Hope you and your families are doing well. And thank you for your podcast. I truly love it. When I think of hero, it may not be traditional, but I would like to nominate my mom as a hero. My mom never received a college education, but always had dreams of becoming a nurse. When I was in high school, she applied to USF, go Florida and go Bulls, and got into a program that wasn't nursing, but still did it to start her college education. Prior to that, she had been taking classes throughout my childhood to receive her two-year degree from a local community college. Later in my high school years, she got accepted into an LPN program, and while it wasn't her dream, it was closer to it. So she started taking night classes, and even though she would get home late from class, she would still wake up early every morning to make sure I got to school okay, which was unfortunately super early. Finally, when I started college, my mom was accepted to an RN program at USF, her absolute dream. She finished in 2014 and has worked in the hospital and later with cardiology ever since. My mom's a hero because she not only dedicated her life to her kids, but also to achieving her dreams to help others. To me, that makes her a hero. I know she doesn't go around saving lives and all of that, but she taught me how to never give up on a dream and that any impact is big enough. Sorry for the long story. I just think my mom is the best. Thanks. I love it so much and there is no need to apologize because I love my mom so much too and I just love when people have a great relationship with their mom. I know not everybody is fortunate enough to have that, but this sounds like such a wonderful mom, you know, that she was able to do that. And it really is so inspiring to, uh, especially even for moms that are kind of uh, our age that have younger kids right now and they're kind of going through it. And they're like, what am I going to do after this, you know, season of my life is over and my, I don't have kids at home anymore. And this is such a wonderful story that shows that you can still go on to achieve a dream or to accomplish something that you want to accomplish even after your kids are older and after you've spent your time raising your kids. So I absolutely love this story. I think it's awesome that Nicole's mom went and got her nursing degree and has been working in the field that she wanted to work in. Yeah, for sure. This is a great story. I loved it. And it's so cool to hear her daughter bragging, not bragging, but you know, looking at her mom as a hero. That's, that's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Oh, and I see her PS said that her brother went to FSU. Oh, and she went to UF. See, I wasn't going to read about the FSU thing. Cause I just <gasps> didn't, that I, I didn't care. <laughs> that I'm tells you everything you need to say she... about UF. <laughs> but then she said she went to UF. So then I was like, Oh, I can, I'll, I'll read that now. So yeah, they are truly a family divided. She says, but they still get along. So let that be a lesson to you, Melissa. You can still love me, even though I just am not an FSU fan. No, I, <laughs> I guess. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was the episode for this week, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. And we will see you back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. 
Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.